Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Folks, we are here with another episode of Small Doses and our educator series. Is continuing on, and I'm very, I'm just very excited about getting to do this because I feel like people love to say all the time, like teachers are the most underappreciated members of our society. They're the most underpaid, etc. They should be the real celebrities. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. So let me use my platform um, to really like shine the spotlight on some educators that have affected me personally, but that have also just affected me in getting to watch them as they do their thing. So our guest today is someone who I literally just like stumbled across on these internets. And I'm so thankful that I did because I think for a lot of us, we, if you, especially if you don't have kids and like you're not in the classroom anymore, like you just forget about how different teachers like made you feel. Um, and when I was watching uh, today's guest, Pranu Kumar, in a video of her basically just pouring into her kindergartners, they were kindergartners, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Into her kindergartners. I posted it and so many people like myself, like started crying watching it. And you're just like, that's right. You're right. I am. I am awesome. I, yes, I, I am great. Also, there are people who say that we can't do this because of the color of our skin. Real talk. They say that we can't do this, that we aren't smart enough, that we aren't good enough. But get, let me tell you something. Every single one of you are beautiful and smart. You have shown that every day to Mrs. Coleman and I. You are intelligent. Mikkel, you are a strong black male, a smart black male who is ready for today. Are you ready? I'm always ready. You sure are. My lovely ladies, they sometimes say, oh, ladies, ladies, they can't do math. They can't do science. But let me tell you something, ladies, can we do our math? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, we can. We show up. They say, Jeremiah, you're four years old. Oh, he's not ready. But Jeremiah, are you ready? Yes. You sure are. You show us how you can count by tens, how you can count by fives. So there y'all have it. You can feel the vibes. You can feel the energy. Pranu, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I genuinely cannot explain to you like how I was just sitting in bed watching that and it made me sit up (laughs) and be like, I can do anything. (laughs) That's the goal. That's the goal. (laughs) You can. (laughs) So, you know, we always start these interviews with first just getting an understanding of like what even brought you to this profession Mm. because... Again, like people say all the time, like teachers are underappreciated. And right now you guys are under attack. 
Mm. Right. And so what is it that made you say, you know what this, because I do believe like teaching as with, um, preaching as with stripping is a calling. Um, <laughs> it, you, you are called to the altar, you are called to the pole and you are called to the classroom. Uh, and so I would love to hear, you know, just kind of what brought you to where you are. Yeah. So first off, I'm just so grateful to be here um, and just share my story and and also just my love of education, liberating educational experiences for the babies. But really what brought me here is um, I always, you know, think about those who've come before me and especially my anima, uh, my grandmother, um, her name was Rohini Rao, and she was an education activist in India. So she fought for children's rights, especially when it came to education um, with colonized India, with um, the caste system, and then also with the emancipation of women's rights. So when I'm thinking about education, when I'm thinking about teaching and learning, I'm always thinking about it through the lens of liberation, through ancestry, and through honoring those who come before us. Um, and really what brought me to the world of education is just this feeling of when I, when I was born in India, I moved to the U.S. Where the, in India? I was born in Hyderabad, India. And actually, most of my family still lives there. So central India. Like, okay. uh, yeah. Um, I've been watching Indian Matchmaker all of this. Oh, my gosh. Now. That's a whole nother. <laughs> I got lots to say about that. <laughs> and another show, Masaba Masaba, if you haven't heard of that show. Have you watched Never Have I Ever? <gasps> yes. Oh, my gosh. Have I ever? I love yes. it. <laughs> masaba masaba okay, okay. good now yes, shows yes. To watch. yes another show okay. um yeah never have I ever reminds me of my mummy which also just a side note um she asked me to bring puja to bless this space <laughs> today <Thank you. laughs> so just blessing you in this space together yes. today yes. my mom was like make sure you bring mangoes and bananas today and bless this space together so just Little plug. Love you, Mama Kumar. Um, love you, Mama Kumar. Yes. Um, but yeah, so uh, I moved from India to uh, uh, to Texas and uh, to Dallas specifically. And my family and I experienced a tremendous amount of racism and oppression, especially in um, professional and educational spaces. And, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but... Um, as I got older, was realizing, you know, lack of identity-driven spaces, lack of seeing myself in curriculum and stories, in teachers in front of me, um, really had a profound effect on my social, emotional, and mental well-being. And so um, as I got older, I, you know, experienced and even till today. Yeah, go ahead. Real quick, yeah. what year, like how old were you and what year did you move here? I think that's important yeah, to like give context. Absolutely. I was um, about two years old when I moved okay. to the U.S. And um, kind of moved all around from Dallas to Austin, Jacksonville, Florida. And this is the 80s, 90s? 80s, 90s. 80s, baby. Yay. Okay. Because um, we're different. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I grew up... Um, just not seeing myself in spaces. And, you know, quite honestly, when I was about 23, um, found myself attempting suicide. 
And I say that because Mm. um, I've been able to reflect on experiences of assimilation, of attempting at erasure of my stories. Um, And I actually use that as a tool of empowerment when I'm talking about what it means to feel empowered in your identity and how to take those those experiences of trauma uh, Mm -hmm. and use it as tools of empowerment. Um, And so I, you know, went to medical school thinking that was where I wanted to work, working with children in that capacity. But once again, found myself in a space of assimilation of, you know, going in, in a different path, going through that sort of immigrant mentality of keep your head down. Everyone's a doctor. Yes, exactly. Do what you need to do. Keep your head down, stay out of trouble, all of the things. Um, And so I moved to, you know, I moved back home after deciding not to do medical school, started working at a- Where'd you go to medical school? Um, I went to Ross University. So I did my undergrad at University of Florida and then grad school. Go Gators! Go Gators! Yeah, yeah. Okay. I went to. I went to. I grew up in Orlando. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So everyone went to, to UF, UF yeah. except for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I didn't. I didn't think you went to. You know. <laughs> Come on, Gators! Yeah, Gators! Go. Go. Yeah, exactly. Um, although I have some things to say about Florida right now, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's I, I put a pen in that. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, she went to UF, and you know, yeah. Florida is Lots. very specifically like fuck teachers. Yeah, right yeah, exactly. So that's why I'm like, oh, so much to say. Um, yeah, but started working in the nonprofit space around 2009. Got laid off. <laughs> uh, okay, moved to New York, and that is where I found education in teaching. I was applying for over 250 jobs. Was working <gasps> four part time jobs. And then lo and behold, this educator fellowship decided for career changers, hey, we think you could be a teacher. And that really is how I got into the field of education. Wait, wait, back up. Yeah, back I know. Up. Okay, I know. first of all, <laughs> what made you go to New York? So um, my now husband uh, and I, we at that time um, had just started dating. He had gotten a position up there in, in school and I was like, let me go try out New York too, since I'm, I don't have a job. I'm in Texas. <laughs> yeah, <right>. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. New York like, sounds like okay. a great choice. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, very quickly found out that it's about who you know than what you know, because I was sending my resume out and nobody was taking me except, thank you, Papyrus Card Shop. <laughs> Papyrus yes. took a chance on me in <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple of other places. And um, and then I got a career changing. And this is like 24, 25? This was 25. Yeah, I was 25. I ask about ages because I feel like regardless of how, like time has changed like certain expectations, but I feel like 24, 25 still consistently is an age where people are like, I have no purpose. Yeah. I don't know what I'm here for. I like I at 24, 25 had reached the two goals that I had planned for my whole life, which was to get a master's and to be on MTV. Mm. So by 24, I had done both those things. It was like, well, what the fuck? What, what else is there to do? I don't even need to be here no more. And I wasn't, 
I almost say I wasn't suicidal, but I was suicide-ish mm. because it was like, I'm not going to kill myself, but if I don't wake up, it's not that deep. Mm. Um, like that was the mindset. And one day I literally like decided I'm not getting out of bed today. And my homegirl, who is an educator, she is an 11th grade teacher. Uh, mm. She texted me out the blue. We don't even talk like that. And she texted me and was like, get up. Uh, I, I was like, how the fuck did you even know that I had decided not to get up today? <laughs> like... How? And she was like, something just told me. Something just told me that you need to get up. Oh my gosh. It's so crazy you say that because that is my one friend. Her name is Aria. Mm, I love you, Aria. She Hi. was that one friend that when I had attempted, I remember I was laying on the floor and could not get up. And she just texted me and said, what's going on? And literally came there. And said, I just want you to come with me. We went to, we actually went to church together. And she was like, I'm not trying to say anything or do it. I just want you to have some spiritual uplifting. And I remember just sitting there and it wasn't even about like the religion. It wasn't about anything. It was just, I just want you to sit with me and know yeah, that someone yes. cares about you. Yes. And I was like, and that I, I tell her all the time that when she did that, it literally changed the trajectory of like that friend that just knew you in that moment. Cause I didn't want to get up. I was like, I'm done. It's okay. I'm, I'm, there's no purpose. And at that point I was even, I hadn't accomplished anything that I wanted to. So, but I didn't know what I wanted to accomplish either. So. Can I ask you what may be an inappropriate question, but no. partially as a comic and a curious person, I have to ask this. Yeah. Did you also feel a certain less, did you also feel a certain sense of lack of accomplishment that you didn't successfully complete the suicide? Mm. You know, I never thought about that. Oh, don't let me start some shit. Oh my gosh. Because I've heard people say that then they were like, and then on top of that, I didn't even successfully do that oh thing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'm no, like, but now I'm thinking about it. Now you got me all deep in thought again. No, because... <laughs> But, and then, you know, and and then the people I've heard who say that, like they said that in therapy, it's like they've had to like turn the corner of like, no, you, it didn't complete it because it wasn't it. Like that wasn't the story. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's just like those other things that you quote unquote didn't succeed at weren't the story. Mm. See, it's interesting because even when you're saying this, when I attempted suicide in that moment, I thought you know, as I've gotten older, I remember there were points where I'm like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. And I will honestly tell you probably in the last four years, I've still, I've realized that suicidal ideation is still very real too. And it has been, yes. and it is not, I thought it was going to be like, I'm good. No, mm. it creeps up. Have it. Oh, imposter syndrome that all yeah. of it just kind of creeps up. And I, it, I say that also with being an educator, I, that whole social emotional well-being and the idea that, you know, we have to be the ones taking care of the babies and also ourselves in any type of climate is without any true authentic support services for us is, is also another, draining. yeah, it's draining. Beyond. Yeah. The suicidal ideation is real. Yeah. yeah I have it. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it'll dance around in my mind. I'm like, Ooh, that would be peaceful. Right. And then I'm like, I'm like, but you're still yeah, here. Yeah. So stick like, it out. 
And then I'm back. I'm back at the yeah. <laughs> Yes. And I'm back on, on Zoom. Zoom. Yeah, I'm like, exactly. All right. Yeah. So what are we yes. doing? Let's watch the next episode of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Ring of Power. Yeah. Okay. Stay focused. We're in it. Yeah. So you're in New York. Yeah. And you just randomly decided to apply for a teaching. It was basically, you said like you were just casting a wide net. Yes. Yes. So I had applied for a career changing fellowship. It was a stipend based two month fellowship. And okay. it wasn't that much, especially living in New York. <laughs> and it was a stipend. Okay. So I wasn't even guaranteed a position at the end of the stipend. But I had gotten into grad school for social work. My dad was like, what are you doing? You're already in med school debt. You want to get in even more debt. You got. You need to figure things out. I just want to let y'all know that Pranu is casually smart. The amount of uh, intellectual flex that's happened casually oh. on this call. Yeah. So like I went to medical school, but I was like, mm. and then... <laughs> I did. I couldn't get a job, but I did get accepted to grad school yeah, for no, mass for no, social no, work. No, yeah, no, no. casual, no, no, casual no. intellect flex. You know what? I'll receive that flower. Thank you. That one's <laughs> not, I'm like, thank you. It's yours. It. Thank, yes. you. thank you so much. Um, yeah. So I ended up falling in love with teaching. I will always say, teaching my babies and and my families saved my life. Teaching one thousand percent saved my life because. The moment I got that job, I didn't even realize the impact it would have on my life and the impact that the babies would have. So I taught in the South Bronx and in Harlem. And what I found was that my babies and our families were so empowered in their identity, in their culture, in their multi-generational experiences, you know, families that were Dominican, Puerto Rican, Ghana. And I was seeing... It was almost healing the inner child in me, seeing how much confidence our babies had. And it allowed me to share more of who I was. So in the space of talking to families um, and and going over for dinners and and connecting with the babies, I was also, in a way, um, uncovering more of who I was and what I experienced at home with my family. Because the one thing I will say is that my mom is someone who has been so proud of her culture, our culture, our identity, where she's come from. And growing up, I was always like, mom, you know, I was trying to, to be different, quote unquote. You know, I was, I was trying to suppress the very part of who I love the most about me now. To what end? Like, just because it felt like your surroundings, like you didn't, mirror your surroundings. And so it felt easier to just be more like the surroundings like that. Absolutely. I mean, I was, you know, my mom and dad have, you know, the accent. And so it was most beautiful. Oh, the Indian accent. Yeah. The Indian accent. Yeah. And they, do you shake your, do you do the, the nod? A little bit. And I also, (laughs) I also walk with my hands behind my back (laughs) and my husband's (laughs) like, you look like Nana. A G, like our dad, my dad. <laughs> That's what we call him. Uh, my 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 little girls do. Um, but yeah, I and I my remember babysitter was Aji. Oh, Aji and Aja. Oh my god! And they were from Fiji, <gasps> and I grew up on curry and roti. Oh my god! <laughs> for like the first four years of my life, every day, the best type of food, roti. 
my yes. we we were at dinner um on Saturday night and my my daughter says, Mommy, I want roti. And I go, What? Did she just say? And I started crying. And my ah! mom was my parents were like, What? And and I just said, <laughs> the, I, it was a, a moment for me because she loved her like our culture in yeah. a way that I grew up saying, Mom. Stop giving me silver tiffins for lunch. Get me a Barbie <laughs> lunchbox. No, no. Like, I want a sandwich, not Idli's. But now, guess who's putting Idli's in her daughter's lunchbox? Right, right, right. Me. <laughs> like little things, you know? But those things, and um, yeah, I, I, I always think about these things, especially when it comes to identity-driven learning for our babies and what it means to have curriculum that is in front of our babies that allows them to feel honored, a sense of empowerment, to yep. honor their background. Um, and that's what New York really allowed me to explore more of was that teaching wasn't just the place I was meant to be, but it was the space of this like culturally responsive learning because I too was learning about myself in the process. Interesting. Yeah. New York has a way of doing that. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's what hip hop was for me. And I found mm. that in New York. I think New York has just kind of this. Um, it's like everyone's on top of each other, but it doesn't feel oppressive in the same way it does in some in other spaces. Mm. It feels more immersive. Mm. Um, and then you kind of have to have your identity because there's everybody around you with theirs. Yeah. So you're like, let me get mine. Since y'all are out here, there's a Dominican Day Parade, there's a Puerto Rican Day Parade, mm -hmm. there's an African-American History Day Parade. Like, you know, and you're oh. like, it empowers you in that way where I feel like in a lot of these other places, like in the South, like the, the story is sameness. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like there's such an effort being put to just everybody be the same. So when I, I, I was teaching in New York and then I ended up moving to Seattle and um, ended up uh, helping to co-found the first elementary charter in the state of Washington. And oh, this wow. was in a primarily refugee community in Tukwila. So it was primarily Ethiopian, Eritrean, Somalian, uh, large Burmese population. And this was a point where it was like, I was thinking about all of the experiences that my parents had not being invited to family events, not being mm -hmm. communicated to because there was the idea that they didn't speak English, so they wouldn't understand anyways. You know, all of these different little pieces where all of a sudden I was thinking, okay, I have this opportunity to help create a school with the community so that I can right, right the wrongs of the past of my own family experiences. So then just to that point of sameness, when I moved to Seattle, it was how can we ensure that community voice is at the forefront of the educational experience? And that's what I, I it sort of all comes to this place of Rowie's Readery, but it was an opportunity to do what we call project-based learning. So math, science, writing, English, or I'm sorry, um, reading, all of it is revolving around the locality of our community. So instead of just learning about um, 
farm to table, for example, as a project unit. We're learning about bread around the world. And we're talking about what types of bread does each child eat in their own home? And how do we apply that to every type of subject? We did a a project-based learning unit that we, um, I wrote called Poets of Color. So the children were learning specifically about poets from their community and seeing how that was a form of activism. Or they were learning about the Black Panther Party and how it was formed in Seattle, the second part, you know, the second group. And um, learning about the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party. So they're learning and engaging with content that is relevant to them. And that was one more step for me to understand, like, how impactful identity-driven learning can be for our babies. But why do you feel like it's so impactful for them? Like, what is it about the identity-driven learning that you feel like kids attach to in a unique way than other styles? Oh, my gosh. I think to be able to see yourself in spaces And to also learn the stories of others creates really conscious and aware citizens of our littlest ones. No, no, yes. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, like what I mean, like, what is it about that type of learning that you feel like kids attach to? Like, is it the relatability that that is sparking them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it definitely has to do with the relatability. I mean, I'm just sitting right now in in the readery. Uh, in Rowie's Readery, and I'm looking at every single book, and I'm remembering a time where a child has come in and has literally pointed to a book and has wanted to read because they see the character Mm. that looks exactly like them. Or I learned about this in school, well, probably not in Florida, but I (laughs) I, Mm -hmm. uh, I learned about this I want to now learn more. Or my friend is from this country. I actually want to learn more about it. Also, the relatability, I think, and that's where literacy is such a huge piece. When you see a child look at a book and want to read it, they also feel a sense of confidence in reading. Because one of the biggest pet peeves that I have is when people say, kids don't like to read. No, kids don't like to read when you don't get to know them and get to see Mm. what is it that they're interested in reading because that's how you build the connection. If a kid sees something that they are interested in, they're going to engage in it. If we're doing math, I'm doing a word problem, which is also reading, that ties back to what they're interested in and then they're engaged in it. So I I definitely think it is all about the windows and mirrors of learning and, and finding that relatability in it. I mean, I feel like so much of the school system has been driven towards whiteness. Mm -hmm. And then so many of us who do not see ourselves in that are left out of that. And I think there was, I mean, there was like a whole conversation around the GED and like I had a homeboy, um, I say had, like he passed away. He didn't pass away. We just haven't talked. And, you know, he he didn't have to call me first. And that's what's going to have to happen. But he had worked to, um, he was working to try and rewrite the GED mm. because he was working in prisons. And he was like, you know, a lot of these brothers, it's not that they're not smart. It's just that when you have these GED questions that they can't relate to, 
you know, it either makes them disinterested or frustrated or they literally just can't understand. Like mm -hmm. if you're referring to bales of hay, like there's no frame of consciousness around that, mm -hmm. you know. But if you're wearing, if you're referring to bricks of coke, now, now, <laughs> he's like this brother right here that I'm working with who's locked up for bricks of coke. He could he could put that together. Like, yeah, that makes complete sense. So he was just like, you know, it's so much of. He was, you know, it's just like always talking about, we went to Columbia together and it's like, you're always talking about like the different ways that racism shows up to get in the way. Mm. Go ahead. What were you going to no, say? No, no, I'm just, something. I have something right here. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's always um, unique. Like I was telling you earlier that I went to brunch with my first grade teacher and you know, it's always dope to like get to speak to people from like so far in your past, like a part of your development that you didn't, you know, they have like jewels and like treasures about you that you didn't know. And, um, you know, Miss Channel, she was just also telling us in general just about how she said that within the school system, you are as a teacher, your whole job is to like identify each kid and their needs mm -hmm. and like service that and figure out how to service that. And the problem is that like the actual education system doesn't give you the tools you need to actually do that job, which is your job. Mm -hmm. And my mom was just listening to her and she was like, you know, I just didn't even, I didn't even realize you were like evaluating, <laughs> y'all are evaluating these kids in this way. And she's like, yes. <sighs> yes. And to that point, Oh my gosh, I have so many thoughts as you were talking. The idea that so there's this whole trend of the words um, of, the, of social emotional learning curriculum, and mm. people are trying to understand children by using this type of curriculum. But um, one, a lot of this curriculum has been written by white people who uh, have either never been in the classroom or mm. are not understanding what it means to be culturally responsive when it comes to social emotional learning. So even this idea that we're telling our educators, oh, here's a curriculum, go figure out like how to support children during COVID and during multiple pandemics that were, that are going on. But, um, but let's see uh, if you can you know, identify what's going on with the child, but we're not even using curriculum that is reflective of our, our students' localities, their experiences, their cultural backgrounds um, to help understand who they are. I just keep thinking about, um, there's an article that I, I reference and I love so much because um, it really allowed me to think about social emotional learning and it's it's, uh, it's called um, when SEL is used as another form of policing. Oh, wow. And so what is social emotional learning, though? Yeah. So social. Oh, my gosh. There's so many. Well, what's it supposed to yeah, be? Yeah. Yeah. It's just uh, so social emotional learning is uh, I would say not even just like a, a lot of people think of it as a boxed curriculum that is supposed to help uh, providing children with tools and resources on how to regulate their emotions, on how to approach different types of situations, challenges, you name it. Teaching them how to be passive aggressive. Yeah, I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, mm -hmm. what it's actually doing is suppressing the very emotions yeah. that our children are having. And also 
thinking about it where it's actually being used as another tool of oppression. And, yep. and so I, I, when you were think when you were talking about, um, you know, teachers having to go through the process of evaluating children, um, and really understand them. Oftentimes what I also see is, uh, is this reference to a social emotional learning curriculum that is not reflective of our children and therefore giving us false information about our children too. Hmm. I mean, in that, so how would you describe your process? Well, first of all, are you still in the classroom? So here's the (laughs) interesting part. I, um, when I was in Seattle, uh, and I think this is something that I've, you know, connected with a lot of educators of color and educators of the global majority about is that um, many of us experience burnout, isolation, um, and lack of supportive resources and in spaces, um, which causes us to leave the classroom. If you look at the statistics for educators of color um, or that are in leadership, it is far less <laughs> than yeah. white women. And um, and so, you know, I ended up leaving the classroom because I was getting paid a third of my white counterparts. I was not being given mental Based health. on what? Um, well, I was teaching. I was coaching leadership. I was coaching the principal. I was, yeah, I was doing, I was writing the curriculum. (laughs) I was doing all the things, uh, and was not getting paid what I deserved. So I ended up leaving and started an education consulting company really focused around representation and retention of women of color and ed leadership. But what I found even in that space of consulting was that uh, people want to use DEIA as there you go a statement as yes. a pick and choose as yep. oh we want you but we don't want you to write and say everything that'll get messy and and shake up yeah. things. So I ended up um, deciding uh, I'm done with this. I'm going to open okay. up my own space, which is Rohi's mm-hmm. Readery. Um, where I get to teach exactly what I want. I get to consult exactly what I want. I get to talk about exactly what I want. And if you decide to pick and choose, then I'm not the person for you kind of thing. And that's where this is. And where's Rohi's Readery located? Um, So Rohi's Readery is located in downtown West Palm Beach, Florida. That's where it needs to be right now. That yeah. is where it needs to be right now. Yeah. And so do you do classes in that space? Like how does the space function? Yeah. So it is uh, what I call a social justice driven children's bookstore and learning center. So every single book in here is reflective of historically marginalized communities. So black, indigenous, Latina, Pacific Islander, Arab, Asian, the LGBTQIA plus population, the neurodiverse and disability population. And then the authors and illustrators are um, also reflective of the stories being told. Because if you look at the statistics, one, diversity in children's literature is already whack. It's it's completely, um, it's you know, there's skewed, skewed. Yeah. And, um, but then if you look at the 
number of authors and illustrators Mm -hmm. that are reflective Mm -hmm. of the stories being Mm -hmm. told, it is far less. So. Well, you know, we did it. We did a poll. I have this uh, subscription service, the Amandaverse, and it's basically like my little Rohi's readery of of Amanda support <laughs> Amanda supporters, right? Mm-hmm. So on the Amandaverse, I asked, like, do we? Because I didn't realize how many white children's authors were having black characters in their books, and it kind of created this crisis of conscience, right? Because on one hand, you're like, well, it it is good that these black characters are existing as representative, but then like how true to the experience can these stories be when it's being crafted by someone who hasn't lived this experience? And are there black authors, I'm sure, who have black characters who are being overlooked? Yes. Right? Yep. Who are being overlooked in favor of white authors crafting these stories. And when we got to talking about it in the Amandaverse, we all came to the conclusion that nope, this is not okay. No. <laughs> and it's not about being um segregationist or possessive as much as it's simply just saying the people who've lived these stories should be able to tell their stories. Agreed. Agreed. The, the beauty of storytelling is that you get to share your story. Um, right. And, and, and that was one of the biggest things for me too in, in the readery is making sure that we honor that. But in addition to that, um, we offer uh, 15 to 20 free classes a month for kids and adults that are all tied with authentic literature. So Cooking, gardening, dance, music, story time. Um, For adults, we do creative and healing writing. We do women of color gatherings. We do documentary viewings. Um, We hosted the first holy event in downtown West Palm. We're doing a Diwali event. Um, You know, we try to do full day events. We did an LGBTQ youth summer camp. this year for the first time, you know, we're doing, um, I've done over 150 free classes, both at the readery and in community outreach places. And then what's also been great about Rohi's readery is that I've been able to extend the learning beyond classrooms and educational spaces. So for example, hotels and um, in game rooms and other spaces have been coming and saying, we want to diversify our library. We want to have a library in the game room. We want to have the educational programming at our space down to the menu, the activities, the whatever it yes. is, the art, the everything representative of our communities. So it's been really exciting to see people thinking about inclusive literature beyond a bookstore. Cause that's not what I want people to see this as. I want them to see this as a space for accessibility. Yeah. So we have like a bookmaking space for kids to make their own books. We have a stage for storytellers because we want kids to know that your story is oh, also is awesome. literacy based. Um, yeah. So we do you do anything online? Yes. So um, we do virtual bedtime time stories. Um, I have started wow. doing, um, I work with a hotel like Nona wave in Orlando actually, um, and did a diverse and inclusive virtual bedtime story series that kids can access for free, um, to tell the stories of our communities. 
No, this is so dope. Yeah. I really feel like um I hope you can franchise this. Oh. <laughs> we love that. I hope, I mean, like, I don't All even business. know. <laughs> I feel like I should connect you with Arlen Hamilton and maybe she's a dope, like venture capitalist who was on the show here and um she invests in people just like yourself she was homeless for like two years living in like the san francisco airport at one point um as she pursued this dream of being a venture capitalist and the episode she did with us was side effects of being underestimated because everybody kept looking at her like you ain't you ain't gonna do it and she was able to convince this one lady to give her twenty thousand dollars she was able to flip that 20 and now she has like a multi-million dollar hedge fund um but I would love if you could send if you could, I don't know if you have any materials that you could send yes. me but I would love to send them to her I feel like if you all could connect like this is this what you're describing is I mean, beyond revolutionary, I, I don't even want to call it revolutionary because I feel like it's so attainable and people act like it's so mm. beyond and radical. And it's like, no, this is the bottom line of what it should be. Exactly. It, this shouldn't be considered radical. Exactly. Like what you're talking about to me should be the actual standard that we are bringing our society into as young people mm -hmm. to be educated. I feel like I turned out the way I've turned out because what you're describing is how I grew up. Mm. Like, I feel like my home was what you described. Mm. Like there was always books about all different kinds of people. And I was being given access to all different kinds of stories. And there was curiosity about my curiosity. Yes. And so, you know, I kind of just grew up with a very diverse experience of education, mm. right? Like, I think that that is, oh, I just love this. Uh. I love it. Because I love that you also, like, continue to create new spaces for yourself mm -hmm. that are feeding you, right? Because I, like you said, like, our educators, so many of our educators are just leaving the field and we need y'all but there's nothing that's being that's feeding you all. So it's like, well, how the hell do you expect people to stick around? This pandemic knocked so many people on their <sighs> ass. Yes. In such a real like genuine way, and then you got to like pick it up and figure it out. And when I think about, you know, just the way that you pour into your students, like you had to pour into yourself yeah. that way. Yeah. <laughs> like and I hope that there were people around you to pour into you that way and I would love to hear like how do you even describe your education style? Because you're special. Uh, I mean, obviously, <laughs> but <laughs> like, I just had never, I had never heard someone speak. You have the ability to speak so earnestly without it being like stern, mm. I guess. Um, and that's, the, to me, that's the mark of like my favorite teachers, like who can like make it clear, like this Listen to me. <laughs> this what I'm saying yeah. is very important, but without it feeling like shut up. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
I have had the honor of being in the presence of the babies that I've taught and have grown with. Like, I am so, I cannot say enough, like, there is an entire wall right here of pictures of my babies, like the babies, because I look at them every day and I'm just like, thank you for the opportunity to grow with you. But also I want you to know that you are loved, you are valued, you, you belong, you matter, you are strong. Um, you have greatness. And I know that I am only cultivating more what their first teachers have done, you know, their caregivers. But um, when they're in school, we know that schools were not traditionally created for people of color. And so, you know, if, if they're not in, you know, if I'm not in the classroom with them or they're somewhere else, like I always want them to know that you matter. Like, I love you. You matter. There is someone rooting for you. Someone always there for you. But I also need you to know that the world (laughs) is not all rainbows and roses and and all the things. Like I, I also want to, one thing I remember, um, that I, I went to when I was in Seattle, um, activist Erica Huggins. Um, she, I know she, um, (laughs) like, please tell me all the things. Um, she, I, I asked her this question. I said, how can I, can, how do I like, how do I ensure that my babies will always feel a sense of belonging in my classroom? How will I let them know. And she said, um, the babies, no matter what age, are never too young to know the truth. Um, so that was what I was going to ask, right? Because I think there's some people who it's like, oh, you know, I don't want our kids to know the type of world they're in because it's too much pressure on them or it's scary. I think that, uh, it's the way that you present the information when you are authentic and honest and you use it to, 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 empower. to empower, to be a tool of empowerment. That's what I'm always looking to tell the babies. If I'm telling you the honest truth about the world, I'm telling you this because I want you to also know that there's a way to overcome it. There's a way yes. to move around it. Like that's why Rohi's Readery is here because I was so tired of, you can't fix the system. How do you work around it? Like, there are opportunities, there are ways um, to to navigate this world. But uh, I think that if I had known that earlier when I was little, um, I don't regret anything, but I know that it would have maybe shifted the way that I perceived the world because I would have had at least some type of tool to understand how to engage with, with the challenges that came about when I was getting old, when I was older, even in college, like I was just no, yeah. Struggled. No, that's real. Yeah. Well, that's real because it feels like it's like a Mack truck hitting you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like okay, from all sides, and when you're getting the whackness only from the whackness, mm-hmm. and you're not receiving the empowerment from like the people who love mm-hmm. you. I guess what I'm saying is like, you can get love from the people who love you, but you also have to have to you also have to get strength from them. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for someone to give you strength to fight something that they're not admitting exists. Ah, uh, yes. 
Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, yes, yes. Like we, like we can't defeat Voldemort if we're not acknowledging Voldemort that Voldemort is, is yes. back. Yes. Like, what, yes. Yes. <laughs> like I have this wand and it's like, okay, I'm doing things with the wand, but like I, you know, and I think that's something that there's so many people like miss the mark on mm-hmm. that. And I, th- I feel like these kids are also more advanced than us. Yeah. Like they have access to just a lot more earlier on. Yep. And even just like these concepts that I see in their movies, mm-hmm. you know, like when I was growing up, like death wasn't like a real thing in kids movies, yeah. you know, it was kind of like a, like, oh yeah, that's like, this person just disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Now they're like, they died. You watch them yeah. die. Let's talk about in, it. You know? Encanto. <laughs> oh my God. Like, right? Coco. Yeah, co- exactly. Like all the things. He literally. Yeah. Went to hell, <laughs> like, like no. not hell, but he went to the yeah, land yeah. of the dead, and then yeah, like, yeah. and then you find out, wait, you can die a second death, yeah, like, so wait, you people die, and then they die again, like, right. what? Oh my gosh, remember me? Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I you saying that reminds me of something I just always think in my mind, and um. It is being seen and and heard is so close to being loved that the two are indistinguishable. Like you can tell me you love me, you love me, you love me, you love me. But if you are not seeing me for my experiences, if you are not hearing me for my experiences, then like, because I've lost a lot of friends <laughs> because of I'm literally going through this with my yeah. aunt right oh now. Oh my God. I'm like, you're not seeing me. You're not hearing right. me. So I can't really rock with right. you right now. Like, and that's like, I need those aspects. Right. And so that's when you were talking about like even teacher training, right? Like 70, if not more, percent of our educators are white females in an ever growing multi, you know, multicultural population in the U S and, you know, we're saying, um, no DEI training, no type of culturally responsive training, or at least in Florida. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, okay, a teacher can tell me, I love you. I love you. But if you are not taking the time to understand who I am, my experiences, my cultural background, not even putting a book in front of me, unless it's like, what I experienced, which was Mahatma Gandhi. We are more than Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> like, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I know, so. right? Yes. Like, you know, <laughs> but um, the ability to for someone to really see you and know you and understand you is so much more to me than someone telling me they love me. Like, just saying the words, I love you. Yeah. I think that's so profound yeah. because it like that shows up in partnership, mm-hmm. you know, that shows up in like friendships, in romantic relationships, et cetera. Like just being able to even impart that to people. And then that as you're it, it if a young person receives that early mm-hmm. on, it empowers them so much quicker to be able to create boundaries, to be able to yes. identify toxicity, to be able to like form their identity around healthy inter- exchanges yes. versus like scraping and clawing yes. to try and get love from something that's or someone that's like not showing you these other things. And you, you know, there's a there's a process that we miss when we don't have that early on. Mm-hmm. And you have to like find that through therapy. Later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's medication too. <laughs> for me. Yeah, for me. Whatever you need. Whatever you need. Uh, 
So tell me this, like, as we look at, you know, what's going on in Florida, like, what are your thoughts in regards to just the the efforts that Ron DeSantis is taking to really undermine teachers, specifically training? Like, why do you feel like teacher training is necessary? Or maybe you don't. Um I think go ahead. <laughs> one, I think he's a terrible human. Um, two, touche. Thank you. Um, just wanted to put that out there. Uh, but two, teacher training is incredibly essential. But even beyond that, before that, I think about the hiring process, teacher hiring, because mm-hmm. are we creating opportunities? for us to really understand who an educator is going into the classroom, who a human being is going into the classroom. Because Mm. I also believe that there are so many other things that can allow for a great educator. And the reason I say this is because um, I worked with an amazing organization called Future Leaders Incubator uh, based out of Brooklyn. And I was doing consulting with them and we were um, working around an educator pipeline for those who uh, have taken a non-traditional path into wanting to go into education. So it may not, you may have not gotten your master's in education, but you got, or, you know, a bachelor's in education or whatever it is, or it took you six years to, to, you know, complete your degree. Um, or, you know, you were working multiple jobs. We're looking at what are the life experiences in yeah. addition to that? So I think it's a culmination. It's thinking about the hiring process. I think it's about looking at who is from the community and how do we ensure that our people who are from the community are in front of our babies. I think it's yep. thinking about um, really uh, just uh, culturally responsive. I keep saying that, but really understanding what quality teacher training looks like. So it's first thinking about what's the history of our community? What is the history of education in our community? Where are kids from? And then going into, you know, what does it mean to be uh, curiosity-led when it comes to, you know, working with children? Um, thinking about, once again, social emotional learning and how to embed that in every single part of our day versus uh, thinking of it from a box curriculum like earlier. Um, I think teacher training is so essential because we need to know the the, the adults that are in front of our babies. And, mm. and, and yeah, um, yeah, I think just saying that you can take a, a six-week not even <laughs> course. Yeah, nothing. Right, yeah. just like a course, a seminar per se. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now you're good to go. Right, and because you were a veteran. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I'm just like, how does that? What does that have to do with, with this? It? Right, and also, what is it that qualifies that to be in front of our babies who are already? experiencing so much right now, which I'm sure as a veteran, you have to, you know? Absolutely. And it's not like there have been mental health resources for veterans. Exactly. It's not as if they have been able to acquire the support that they need in response to what they have gone through. So why would that be the group, the pool mm-hmm. that is best to pull from, right. to put in front of such influenced minds, like such easily... Um, also like, also 
kids are annoying. Yeah. Like, can you handle it? Can you handle 33 <laughs> kindergartners in one classroom? Because that's real. Can, <laughs> yeah. Because that's... That's real. I mean, I remember when my homegirl, uh, we graduated and she became a teacher and she had like 25, five, you know, five-year-olds and she lost her voice. Because yeah. she was like, I just, I'm like yelling. And she was like, I realized like I have to find another yeah. way. Like this is not going. And she was like, I'm not even like yelling at them. I'm just like trying to yell uh, over yeah. them. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> to get them to corral. That kind of energy but, is... You're literally doing a performance every day on stage <laughs> for your children. <laughs> you know? But it's interesting because I really see that with you guys. Like, I mean, uh, one of the other educators we had on the podcast, Valencia Valencia, like mm. she would say, I mean, Valencia de la, de la Clay, like she was saying how she had wanted to go into like acting or, you know, something of, of that type. And I feel like so many of the best educators I know are performers. Yeah. <laughs> Like they're in front of a class and they're giving you a show, yes. honey. They're giving you a show. We are. So here's a tough question. I don't even know if it's tough. It might not even be that tough. Mm. So you have all these folks that are like, well, first of all, they like weaponized CRT and like turned it into some other shit that it's not yeah. just to make people scared. And what they tried to do was say that by teaching the true history of America, it actually is hurtful to white children because it puts them in a position to where they're going to be shamed and they are not going to love themselves. Mm. Now, in the reality that like there really is no such thing as white culture, mm. right? There is American mm. culture. There is American history. And by nature of just how racist this place is, there is white American experiences mm. that are unique to black American experiences. And all of those experiences are based in oppression. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like if it, if your white American experience is unique to a black American experience, nine times out of 10, it's because of oppression, right? right. Like you got to camp, you got to go swimming, mm -hmm. you got to play golf because you wouldn't let black people do it. Mm. So in that, in that space, it becomes, all right. So I know exactly why we have to make spaces for cultural competency around those of us who are the other. What do we do with the white kids? We're teaching them. <laughs> We're teaching them the like, truth. I mean, I honestly will tell. Is there any, is there any truth to like the fact that like their truth is a shameful one and thus it's hurtful for them to know it? No, no, it is not hurtful. No. No, I, I constantly think about this. So I remember, so the first time I full transparency ever taught white children was in Seattle. I had three uh, white children in my class and mm -hmm. I remember there was only three. There were only Where three. Where in Seattle were you? In Tequila. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a primarily like Ethiopian and Eritrean community. And, um, got it. Yeah. And, uh, I just remember being like, I I'm going to teach exactly how I've, oh, I'm going to teach the same content. I'm going to teach, we're going to talk about all the things. And mm -hmm. I will tell you, children are humanity in its purest form. They are mm. literally humanity in its purest form. When you are talking about all of these things that have happened in history, no one is going home saying, 
or at least the children that I taught were not going home saying, Miss Kumar said this. And all, you know, it was in that moment, I can't believe that happened. Well, yes. Or what can we do to make sure it yep. doesn't happen? Or I would yep. never treat my friend this way. I know, I know mm-hmm. you wouldn't, but unfortunately there are external factors that are going to pop into your mind or people who are around you who are going to want to influence the purest form of who you are. And, and that's, that's really. Ooh, say that last uh, part again. <laughs> there are external factors around you that are going to want to pop into you and influence the purest form of who you are. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think about that a lot because I also think about a lot of the babies that come in to the readery, into Roe's readery and, you know, um, and family members who are sort of like figuring out where they are on their journey. Right. And of understanding the LGBTQ population or, you know, the black and brown population or, you know, uh, their family member, um, has a disability and they're trying to navigate this conversation with their, their little ones. And, and it's like, if you're telling them in your most authentic, like the, the experiences, your children are going to, they're, they're, they're going to understand. Um, and I, I think about that with our little ones is that no one is, is blaming each other in that moment. They're actually thinking about, they're always trying to think about how to solve a problem or how to, you know, there, there are like little problem solvers or, you know, they're, they're flabbergasted. They still have the imaginative freedom Mm -hmm. to just consider possibility, right? right? Like they don't have yet the limitations of like, well, we can't do that because we don't have a big enough budget. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) To that point, it's so, and so something that we say is, um, and there's like a sign in here, right here that says revolutionary readers, because we say, you read something, you learn something, you share it with the world. And that's my song. Um, And the idea is that letting kids understand that you are activists of your learning. So whether it is through art, through spoken word, through going out and speaking your voice at um, a rally, whatever it might be, that you have the ability to make change in the world from what you've learned, especially through literacy. Knowing that if you read a book or if you learn something um, from a book, it's not just staying in there. You have the ability to take that out and make change with it. And then another thing is that we're supporting you and really understanding the systems even at a young age so that let's say something's going on in your school, we're going to help you identify who's the person you need to talk to to create change. Like things like that. So we're trying to- Practical. Practicality at a young age so that they're not like how I was when I was thinking, I have this great idea when I'm little, but nowhere to go with. I mean, I think, is that, is that executive function? I just learned about executive Mm. function. Like that's like part of that, right? Just being able to have the idea and take it from A to B and know the steps or at least know that you that there are steps that you need to learn, mm. right? And being able to feel empowered enough to say, let me find out what those steps right, are. Right, right. 
mean, I just, I think this, I think it's, it's so, um, exciting to get to hear just what you're embarking on and, and how you're continuously creating more and more space and pushing the perimeters of what learning really is, because we're in the middle of a very big, um, we're in the middle of a crisis. Mm -hmm. We're in the middle of a dystopian shift. And I continuously say that education is the key to our liberation. Mm -hmm. And when we just consistently see the efforts that are being made to silence, it lets you know that we have to be even louder and clearer and sharper and more intentional. So kudos to you for doing all of that with Rohi's Readery and with the content that you're sharing. Where can people follow you on Instagram? Yeah, you can follow at um, Rohi's Readery. So R-O-H-I-S. R-E-A-D-E-R-Y on Instagram. And then I have a website, um, www.rohisreadery.com. <laughs> and before we go, what, if any, if any words of wisdom would you give to parents of, <laughs> of young children who are looking for books for their child to read Mm, come what's like a guidance mm, like what's a guide oh my gosh I really get so nervous when it comes to like parent advice because I don't know what I'm doing at the time (laughs) but well just I mean you're a reader yeah no you're right if a parent comes in if a parent comes in and says oh my goodness Pranu (sighs) I'm here with my child we are looking for but he's a second grader. Mm. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I see your brain is working. I always tell whenever I whenever the babies come in, no matter what age they are, I tell uh in the, the the caregiver is asking, you know, what book do you think would be good for my kindergartner or something? Mm-hmm. I always say let them lead. Let them lead the way. They will bring you to where, mm-hmm. you know, where they, mm-hmm. you know, put all the covers out, especially for the books, um, like the children's books, kids are always going to first pick up what they visually connect with. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, uh, allow curiosity to lead just, you know, cultivate their curiosity. Don't be afraid to answer questions, but also if you don't have the answers to those questions, get a book. (laughs) <laughs> a children's yeah. book. Children, a children's <laughs> right. book will always help. I've had so many family members, uh, caregivers come in and say, I'm not really sure how to talk to my child about, you know, they, they came home and they said, you know, X had uh, two mommies and it was, how do I have this conversation? Well, there are different types of family units. Here's a couple of books around that, but also here's some books that just show two mommies and it's not the theme of the book. It's right. It's it's two mommies going to the park together with their child. So um, I think definitely allowing children to tell you what they're interested in, um, but also knowing that if you're reading a book in which there is some type of new content or a new concept um, and you're not quite sure about it, don't be afraid to say, I don't know, let's learn together. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Beautiful. And I just want to add, keep books around your kids. Mm -hmm. You know, like books, 
need to be present mm. around your kids. Like I feel like so many folks didn't have books around. And so it started to feel like that's for someone else, mm. you know, or they weren't as ex- like, they didn't feel like something accessible. And I just feel like books should be as common as furniture. Mm. If you can, um, I, I mean, I, I literally just keep books around whether I'm reading them or not. This is a book yeah. right there. Uh, <laughs> And I know that growing up, I mean, there were always just books in my immediate space. Mm -hmm. And it, to your point, to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, I feel like it gave me confidence, especially books that I had already read with my mom. You know, it just kind of felt like, oh, like that's a thing over there that I know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, or that's the thing over there that brings me joy. Or that's, a, you know, that's that's the thing. And it's different than a toy. Mm. It's different than a toy. Yeah. It's different than a toy. But I just feel like a lot of times, I just feel like a lot of folks don't, they we take for granted as adults just how intriguing books are to a young mind and how much they really do it do change our the space. Yeah. And if there's one sort of like lasting thing I could also think about in connection to that is um, if your child is holding a book, if they're looking at the cover, if they're looking at the pictures, if they are being, if they're listening to you read, that is reading. Cause I have so many people that come in and will also say, well, my child doesn't know to read or my baby's three months. They don't know how to read. If your baby is looking at the images as you're reading, they're picking up on the illustrations. That's reading. If your three-year-old is holding a book and flipping through and making up a story, that's called emergent storybook telling. That is reading. If your child Mm. is saying, I don't like to read or I don't know how to read, but they love being read to at night, that is reading. So also honoring yes because y'all ways. are listening to these audible books. yeah exactly y'all are listening <laughs> you know? to these audible books so there's just so many different ways that we can let our babies be confident in knowing that they can read um even going up on a stage and telling a story that is a form of literacy learning and reading so um just being yes. aware of honoring all the ways that our babies of all ages are are exploring the world of reading <laughs> But just for you adults, reading a headline and not reading the article is not oh, reading. Man. Okay. <laughs> so just just wanted to drop yeah, that yeah. in there because I feel like that that's a thing. So mm-hmm. just wanna Take yeah. a look. Well, Pranu, we are so happy to uh, be able to just let more people know about everything that you're doing at Rohi's Readery. I will continue to be a fan and a follower. <laughs> thank you. So oh. thank you. And when I make it down to South Florida, I will make yeah. it my business to come by <laughs> Rohi's Readery. Do. And if anyone wants to donate to Rohi's Readery for our free educational programming. <laughs> yes, please let us know because I will absolutely please. be doing oh, that. Thank you so much. Um, it is, uh, you can just go onto our website and see how you can support and either sponsoring for classes, for a set of books, uh, for our community, or donating to our free educational programming and keeping the lights on in the readery. <laughs> yeah, you got the can't, can't have read by candlelight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Pranu. Thank you so much. This was pure joy. I'm so grateful for this time together. 
It was the mangoes. And I was going to say the pooch. It worked. It worked. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Voila. 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 A A podcast network.